I'm Katie Waldron, and this is In My Mind. I would like to begin the episode today with a disclaimer and a trigger warning. The following story is a fictional story in the mind of someone with mental illness. Not everyone with this disorder experiences the same symptoms or lives the same lifestyle as the character depicted in this episode. Because mental illness affects everyone differently, this is only a possible situation. The following story may also contain references to abuse, self-harm, violence, or death. Listener discretion is advised. On that note, we will now be delving into the story segment. I always had to be here, in this environment. It didn't matter how I got here or how much harm I put myself through to get here, I just had to be. Here in the hospital, I felt a sense of belonging. The doctors and medical staff were so kind to me, so nurturing, and constantly checked in on me. Here, I mattered. I wasn't just another patient, I was part of a family. Recently, my trips had become very frequent and my debt was piling up but I couldn't escape the compulsion. When I was recovering or had already recovered from illness, I would induce it again on myself. Before you ask, I've never understood where this obsession with physical illness and the attention I received from it had stemmed from. I suppose it all started with a trip to the hospital when I was five years old. Then I was going through a phase where I constantly tried creating potions, which consisted of making different mixtures of drinkable substances in hopes I would be able to make something magical. I had poured myself half a cup of orange juice and searched through the cupboards for something I hadn't used in a mixture quite yet. I found some liquid beneath the sink in a large white jug and decided that was my best bet. When I mixed it into the orange juice and took my first sip, I noticed that it was immensely bitter, but I drank it anyway. Halfway through the cup, my stomach started to hurt and cramp, and I clutched it in response. My mother came into the room at that moment and noticed the white jug on the counter and my hand on my stomach. Assuming the worst, she rushed me to the hospital. I remember being so upset to leave and wishing I could stay. I felt a sense of comfort there that I hadn't felt in my own home. It was that trip that resulted in me frequently finding ways to return to that environment, to return to my friends at the hospital. This obsession continued throughout all of my childhood and still affects me today. What started with putting chemicals under the kitchen sink into drinks became much more serious. Just a couple months ago, I began eating small amounts of arsenic. I don't quite remember how I got my hands on the substance, but consistently shoveling the poison into my body resulted in frequent nausea and vomiting, abdominal pain, muscle cramps, and red swollen skin that had led to the constant hospital stays. Because I was losing so much fluid, I was hooked up to IVs. I got a lot of medical attention and treatment that would have led to a quick recovery, but I didn't want to leave. To prolong my stay, I began to tamper with the IVs I was hooked to inserting any substance I felt was bacteria-ridden from dirt to stool, so I would continue to stay sick. This led to a decline in health that couldn't be pinpointed to any real disease or illness, and none of the doctors understood why I was getting worse and their treatments weren't working. This brings me to the present. Because I was fiddling with my IVs, my condition developed into something much worse, blood poisoning. It started with confusion, 
Where was I? What was happening to me? Why did I need treatment? Who were all the people around me? Then the poisoning began to physically manifest itself. I was constantly shivering and experiencing constant chills. I felt increasingly weak and fatigued, and I felt like I couldn't catch my breath. I was breathing too fast. The most alarming was the dusky and strange appearance of my skin. But even with treatment, I continued to spiral. In no time, my blood pressure had dropped dangerously low, and my liver was beginning to give out, and I was quickly transferred to the intensive care unit. It was there that my behavior shifted largely. I no longer wished I was constantly sick. I no longer felt the compulsion to do whatever I could to stay longer. Now, I feared for my life. I wanted to live. I wanted to survive. I didn't want my life to end in a hospital bed. So today, I told the truth. I stopped one of the nurses as they came into the room to administer my daily dose of antibiotics and refill my AV. I told her that it was my fault I was getting worse, and she looked at me skeptically. It's not your fault these misfortunate events are happening in your life, she began, attempting to comfort me, but I stopped her. It's my fault. I gulped and took a large breath in, knowing full well that as soon as I admitted to the pain I had been inflicting on myself, everything would change. A dam would break, and my confessions would come flooding out. Please go get the doctor. I would like them to hear this too. I requested. Soon, my most trusted medical professionals stood at my bedside, and it was then that I began to tell my life story. It started with the orange juice, with the compulsion that rooted from it, and quickly worked my way through my life of self-harm and my obsession with physical illness. It was then, reflecting on my past, that I realized what I had truly been doing to myself. It was there, in that hospital bed, that I saw my obsession for what it was. Slow and steady, I had been killing myself from the day this compulsion began. And now, when I felt like I was at the end of my life, I wish I had never begun at all. That is the conclusion of the story segment of today's episode. Stay tuned if you would like to hear myths, facts, and information regarding factitious disorder. If you would like to hear more podcast episodes like this one in the future, please contribute and donate towards me in this podcast on Patreon. 25% of donations go towards mental illness charities and foundations. Also, please don't forget to show In My Mind some support and follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Though factitious disorder is a treatable and diagnosable illness that can both mentally and physically impact those who have it, it is still widely assumed that there is no treatment available for those with this disorder, that this disorder only impacts those who have it, and that there are not many recognizable symptoms of factitious disorder. While it may be hard to diagnose and find treatment for factitious disorder, as many people who suffer from it are good at masking the truth, those suffering from this disorder are not helpless as portrayed by the media, and oftentimes the symptoms of their disorder have a large impact on the people around them. My goal today is to dispel a couple of myths about this disorder. Myth 1. 
Factitious disorder only affects those who have it. There are actually two types of factitious disorders. The first is factitious disorder imposed on self. Those with this disorder intentionally fake symptoms, exaggerate, or impose injury and illness on themselves, often for attention. While this obviously affects the person who has the disorder, it also affects all those who support them. Their family, friends, and health workers have all been deceived by their lies or haven't recognized the symptoms of self-imposed harm, and this can seriously harm relationships, especially if the foundation is built on a lie. The second is factitious disorder imposed on another. Those with this disorder, especially those with a caretaker role, such as a parent, intentionally fake symptoms, exaggerate, or impose injury and illness on the person they're caring for. They often do this for attention. This obviously affects the person being cared for and is actually considered a form of abuse. But along with that, the people around them tend to believe their lies and support them as well and fail to recognize the lies or abuse happening in that relationship. This obliviousness can encourage more of the same deceitful behavior, which is very harmful to all those involved. In summary, factitious disorder affects others, and not just the person who has it, in both cases. Myth 2. Those with factitious disorder don't have many recognizable symptoms. There are actually many symptoms that those with factitious disorder exhibit. Knowing these symptoms can help healthcare professionals, family, and friends distinguish real infirmities, illness, and injury from fake or self-imposed infirmities, illnesses, and injuries. Here are some of the symptoms. They may have inconsistent symptoms or may have conditions that get worse for no reason and don't respond as expected to treatment. Often, they will be found seeking treatment from many doctors, even using fake names, have a reluctance to allow doctors to talk to anyone besides them, stay in the hospital frequently, exhibit eagerness to have frequent testy or risky operations, argue with doctors and staff, and have few visitors when hospitalized. Myth 3. There is no cause for factitious disorder. This isn't entirely a myth, as the exact cause for this disorder is still unknown. However, there are many things that pose as risks for developing this disorder, such as childhood trauma, a serious childhood illness, the loss of a loved one, past experiences of illness or injury that brought attention, poor self-esteem or depression, working in the healthcare field, or a desire to be associated with healthcare workers or facilities. And lastly, myth four, there is no treatment available for factitious disorder. Treatment is available for many mental illnesses, including factitious disorder. A primary care doctor can help those with factitious disorder create a treatment plan, manage their needed care, and schedule visits to other healthcare professionals. Psychotherapy can help them develop coping skills, control stress, and learn to find attention in healthy ways. Medication can help them treat other mental health disorders, as anxiety and depression often coincide with this disorder. And lastly, in severe cases, hospitalization may sometimes be necessary to keep one safe and treat them. 
Some home remedies for this disorder include sticking with a treatment plan, having a primary care doctor, remembering the risks of needless surgeries and tests or self-inflicted illnesses and injuries, resisting urges to find new doctors or run to a new hospital, and finding someone to confide in. Oftentimes, people who suffer from those very real mental illnesses are characterized as attention-seeking, crazy, or weak. They are often cast aside or judged for something that needs to be acknowledged and accepted. I invite you all to help correct assumptions and misconceptions about factitious disorder and continue to educate yourselves and others on the challenges and facts regarding this disorder. For more facts and information on factitious disorder, feel free to check out clevelandclinic.org, mayoclinic.org, and helpguide.org, which are all useful platforms in educating oneself on mental illness and the steps that can be taken to diagnose and help with this illness. I used these platforms to help create this episode of In My Mind. Finally, don't forget to donate to my Patreon. This month, I will be donating 25% of all profits I make from Patreon to the Brain and Behavior Foundation, which aids in the research of many mental illnesses. All donations, no matter how much, are significant in helping me continue to spread awareness about mental illness and the truth behind many misconceptions we see in the media daily. I'm Katie Waltron, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of In My Mind.